What's up, everybody? Welcome to another week of The Bible Boys. My name is James. And I'm Pip. I'm thrilled once again to get into another week of looking at the Bible, wrestling with some questions, and catching up with you, James. We have Sounds seen good. a lot of each other in the last couple of weeks, which has been great. We've, we've had a, a whirlwind of a couple of weeks. That's right. Last week we were co-hosting More Review, which went off and it was a privilege and pleasure to co-host that with you. And then we had college, of course, but then we just spent a weekend together at a ministry apprentice recruiting conference called MTS Recruit. And you were doing double duty last week on the hosting side because you also emceed MTS Recruit. And I thought you did an excellent job. Oh, thank you, James. Thank you. Yeah, I I really enjoyed... um doing the review, lots of laughs. I think it went well, you know, you know, fairly smooth, you know, <laughs> worked the crowd a bit. Um, That's right. Yeah, MTS Recruit was a, a bit more serious. Still, you know, moments of light, a few laughs here and there, but more serious. And um, it was really great to be able to do that with uh, Rachel, who's in first year at Moore College as well, and she did a, a great job as well. You managed to weave in a Call of Duty reference into your MCing, so top job. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I was a little bit nervous about that because, you know, people have different opinions about Call of Duty, but I, I said, you know, I don't advocate it necessarily, but just sharing, you know, that's, that's <laughs> one way that I wind down. Yep. That's right. Well, you know, you were setting, it was, it was a nice joke because you set it up in contrast with sometimes some people rest by doing a triathlon. Yeah. Some people right. rest by playing Call of Duty. <laughs> yeah. Different types of people. I'm definitely not a uh, triathlon rester. That's not my that's rest. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it was a big week of getting into the Bible. Just thinking about the weekend, it was such a joy to be able to think a bit about what, uh, you know, the reality of, of God's grace and his kindness towards us in sending his son, how we have the assurance of resurrection hope, how we live in light of his future return, Christ's future return, and what faithful, uh, what the character of a faithful gospel minister is to look like as well. Those were our night talks by yep. uh, um, a guy named Pete. How do you say his last name? Sorensen. Pete Sorensen. That's right. Yep. He's a uh, AFES staff worker, university ministry staff worker down in Victoria. And then we also heard some talks from Jeremiah on resilience in ministry uh, by the national MTS, the the ministry apprenticeship director, uh, Ben Farlett, and so uh, it was it was a solid weekend of getting into the Bible. I thought, yeah, I I really loved. I mean, you know, I think Ben did a great job in Jeremiah, but I I really love what Pete said at the very start of the conference when we asked him, you know, what's what's the kind of one sentence takeaway? What like what's the thing that you want us to take away? And he basically he looked around the room. He said, I just want us to see the gospel afresh. Mm. And for me, I'm like, as a, as a college student who's kind of getting into, you know, what does this particular word mean? What does it, how does this particular passage fit in with the, um, you know, the book? And it, it can get a bit um, nitty gritty, which is, which is good, which is great. But to be able to just like spend a weekend listening to hearing the gospel afresh was really refreshing for me. Um, but I also like, it made me realize, you know, the best context in which to make decisions about ministry and about your life is that are those contexts where you're um, immersed in the gospel you know mm. like we make the best decisions when we have the best view of the gospel and what jesus has done for us and so i thought that was yeah. really helpful no just lots and lots and lots of helpful content over the weekend lots of bible-ness 
And uh, just uh, one more thing I want to acknowledge before I ask, you know, what you'd like to share, maybe what you're learning, that sort of thing. We have a number of uh, new listeners who've um, jumped on ever since the more review, some people from college, but also um, the Book of Common Prayer rap is now oh, yeah. on YouTube. And a few people, including more college lecturer Mark Ernji, uh, did a bit of a job of, uh, of uh, sharing it with UK Anglican Twitter and US Anglican Twitter. So it went viral on Anglican Twitter, which means it has, you know, what, a hundred views now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's got more than that. It's got over a thousand views now on, on YouTube. It's popping off. Well, um, welcome to anyone who's, you know, jumped on board Bible Boys because you're just trying to check out what it is that we're on about. We're two boys. Mm. We've got some, got, you know, the Bible and we love yep. talking about it. Yeah, it's pretty simple, but it's, uh, it's good. <laughs> Uh, Pip, what would you like to share about maybe what you're learning uh, from college or something you were reminded of? Maybe it was something from the weekend itself in particular um, or something random you'd like to share? Yeah, um, I think one thing that I'd like to share from the weekend. um, So let me just pull up the verse. Uh, One of the points that he was making was, uh, one of the points that Pete was making was, um uh what what is like what is the persecution that's being talked about in Peter's letters and it was he, he kind of made an interesting point he said like um uh he said we might be tempted to think of the persecution that Peter's talking about when he when he talks about don't be surprised when um people revile you or when they persecute you um we, we might be tempted to think that he's talking about like people being burned at the stake or kind of like the massive physical persecution that has existed throughout church history in different parts, different places. Um, but what really struck me was Peter's description of that persecution um, being more along the lines of actually like people um, insulting Christians and, pe- and people being surprised um, when Christians don't join in in the sort of like lifestyle that they enjoy, and so for for like for one example in one Peter three nine, it says like do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Um, that kind of gives us a bit of a window into um, like the kind of persecution, you know, insults. Um, just trying to quickly look up where it says the revile thing. Uh, 1 Peter 3.16, those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So people who speak maliciously or hatefully or kind of angrily against, you know, your good behavior in Christ. Um, and so, I don't know, there's, there's stuff in the news right now about stuff happening in Victoria you know, people losing jobs around not having a set of beliefs that's acceptable by most of the kind of rest of the population. And those views are are Christian views of, um, you know, sexuality, uh, just, you know, what believing what the Bible believes. Um, And people heaping abuse or reviling people for those beliefs. Even just like, you know, if you've had an experience where, you know, someone just rolls their eyes at 
you for saying something that you believe from the Bible. Um, that is like, that might even come close to what Peter's talking about when he's talking about persecution. Um, mm. And so, like, it kind of helped me to reread 1 Peter afresh and to think through, okay, like the world of 1 Peter might actually have more similarities with my world than I first thought. Mm. Um, mm. And, and yeah, when Peter says, like, you know, that Jesus didn't retaliate and that we're, the, the kind of attitude that we should have towards people is graciousness and um, love and standing, standing firm in the faith, um, that that is actually something that is applicable today. Um, yeah, yeah, so... So I think like it's it's kind of a common you you might hear commonly people say things like oh well you know when you talk about persecution in Australia that's nothing compared to what the Bible talks about when it talks about persecution it's like okay maybe maybe that's true in some parts and there's definitely places in the world where people have it a lot worse in terms of persecution than in most places in Australia but that doesn't mean that persecution is non-existent um, in different places in schools, in the, in the workplace. Um, and so we can't kind of sweep it to the side and we need, to, we need to be equipped and equip people for dealing with persecution when it comes. Hmm. So, Well, interestingly, I think, um, I, I don't know exactly what the original language word for persecution is, but in English, at least, the word persecution doesn't show up once in 1 Peter. It's the word sufferings and there's a spectrum of suffering. So, you know, 1, 1 Peter 2, you've got beatings, but then 1 Peter 4, um, got the verse open, 1 Peter 4, 14, it says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ. And so mm. sufferings is a very, is a very broad spectrum from, at least in 1 Peter, you know, from, um, uh, uh insulting, being insulted all the way to beatings and, and presumably death as well. Um, so yeah, no, it's a, it's a helpful, I thought it was a helpful insight when Pete said that. I also got struck by that as well on, uh, Saturday night when he was, and he said that it was almost like a passing comment, wasn't it? It wasn't his big yeah, idea. Yeah, it's it's often things like that in sermons, like a passing comment that that stick in the mind, like just an interesting mm. insight that that sticks out. Like, um, you know, I wish I was better prepared and had the verses out in front of me. Um, kind of all it it does seem like there are a few instances of of you know it doesn't call it sure it doesn't call it persecution, but like you know in 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 essence it's persecution, right? people being insulted, reviled. Um, and it's just interesting to, to realise, okay, there is a parallel we can we can draw. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm, nice. So, yeah, that was, that was something interesting. What about you? Is there anything you'd like to share before you do your um, spot for today? Yeah, sure. Well, one of the things that I'm working on right now is an essay, an Old Testament essay for, for college due on Friday night. It's essentially, five, there are five different types of essay questions you could pick from. And the running theme is trying to understand uh, other texts from the ancient Near East that might have some similarities with the biblical texts and tr trying to work out how understanding those texts might inform our reading of the Bible or not inform it at all. Um, and, and thinking about whether that's a valid thing to do. And so I've been thinking a bit about the tabernacle uh, Exodus 25. Um, tell you what, let me just share maybe two quick things from Exodus 25. Um, 
of course, the, the instructions for the tabernacle go from, you know, Exodus 25 all the way to Exodus 31. But the assignment question that I've chosen in particular is focused on chapter 25 itself. And um, yeah, I've just been blown away by how many amazing things there are in this chapter. Have you spent any time at all thinking about the tabernacle before Pip? You know, thinking about Exodus 25? Can't say I've spent a lot of time thinking about the tabernacle. Like, we, I remember bits and pieces from... Old Testament look thinking maybe more so about the temple but um, yeah just a, a little bit about the tab- tabernacle particularly like how it's how it's different in terms of the the image of, of God you know what, what's mm. thought of as, as being the image of God in the temple yeah um, it's quite different in Israel than in surrounding nations yeah nice nice well let me point out two things uh, in Exodus 25 that I have seen in my work in it. So first of all, um, it's very, uh, it's it's quite striking that in verse one and two, uh, God says to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Now, this is really striking because God wants the, the Israelites who are willing to provide an offering. It isn't a command for absolutely everyone to, to give. And yet, even though only those who are willing to give are going to make this offering, the tools uh, and the, the, the um, materials that end up becoming what the tabernacle was made from is going to benefit all of the Israelites. Um, mm. Now, I don't quite know what the significance of that is yet, but I was thinking a bit about, because at MTS Recruit on the weekend, uh, I sat in on an elective by Bishop Gary, because I was there bouncing Henry to sleep, and Gary yep. just happened to be there, so I was listening to it. Gary said something that just made me, I, I was going, you know, nothing Gary says anymore is drastically, you know, new, not because what he says isn't profound, but just because I've spent so much time with Gary. But Gary just said something which really struck me, where he said, you know, your brothers and sisters in Christ who don't sacrifice and give generously to church or don't go into gospel ministry, you know what? They're just as saved as you are. <laughs> You're not mm. saved more because you give generously to church or you go into gospel ministry. Um, and, and so on one level, if you go, well, what's the point? Um, you're asking the wrong question there. Um, but it made me, uh, it came to mind as I was reading Exodus 25 because not all of the Israelites were going to give towards the building of the tabernacle. And yet God still blesses all of the Israelites. Um, yeah, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's something that struck me from this as well. Only those whose heart prompts them to give were to participate. And then if you think about what the goal of all of this is, the goal of all of this is in verses 8 and 9. Do you want to read verses 8 and 9 for us? Yeah, sure. It says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Hmm. So that word there, sanctuary, or some translations have holy place or sacred ground, um, is really striking because it's shown up one time, the, the exact same word, previously <clears throat> in Exodus. It's in Exodus chapter 15. So I'm just going to flip over to Exodus chapter 15. I think it's verse 17. Verse 17, that's right. So verse 17, this is a song that happens after the crossing of the Red Sea. And so... Uh, um, the song has this in verse 17. Uh, it's a song to God. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling. 
the sanctuary Lord, your hands established. And so this is where we've seen this word sanctuary before. Notice though, in Exodus 15 verse 17, the sanctuary is referring to the mountain, presumably Mount Sinai, Mm. uh, which is the place where God wants to meet with his people. However, without going into all the weeds of what happens in Exodus 19 and then 20 and then 24, in Exodus 25, God wants Moses and the people to create a sanctuary so that he can live with the people that's not the mountain. The sanctuary is not the mountain anymore in Exodus 25. The sanctuary is the tabernacle. And so we have this amazing shifting of this imagery of sanctuary where in Exodus 15, it's referring to Mount Sinai and God, you know, calls the people to come up there and meet with him. But in the tabernacle, what God is doing is he's saying, I don't want you to just come up the mountain and meet me there. I will come down off the mountain and meet you where you are. In other words, it's an act of grace. It's a, it's a gracious provision that God wants to not just call the people to come to him, but he is coming to meet with the people. And he is giving them the means to always be in his presence. And so that the, the tabernacle with all the stuff about, you know, cubits here and materials there and curtains and whatnot, at the core of what it's all about is about God wanting to graciously dwell always in the midst of his people. That's what mm. binds together all the stuff to do with the tabernacle. Mm. Yeah, that's quite amazing. That's quite amazing. Yeah. So I'm really glad I'm doing this assignment and, um, yeah, keen to think more about it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. There's, like, a lot of questions that come to mind about the tabernacle and the temple. I guess we'll save them. We won't. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll do them in a few weeks' time. But um, I think it's, like, one question I I think it's worth wrestling is, like, the temple seems to be a way that God condescends, you know, using that word not in a negative way, but, you know, like all the, na- like, the nations around Israel had temples where they mm-hmm. worshipped to gods and then Israel built their temple, mm-hmm. right? And it's kind of like, it, I think it's, um, you know, when you read through... Old Testament for the first time as a kid or as a teenager. I think it's like, I don't know, it's tempting to think like this is the way that God wants to meet with his people. But actually there is like, I feel like a sense in which it's God also communicating to his people in such a way that they can understand. It's a way that actually like uses the parallels from the context in which that place to... Um, to be with them. I think, like, and it's interesting, like, what was the Israelite? Because Israel had this view of God above, you know, God kind of being, you can't escape God, God being everywhere. Um, and so how can that be true and yet God reside in the temple at the same time? It'd be interesting to kind of think about what was the Jewish mindset around where where is God and mm. what role does the temple play in that? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But we don't have time. We don't probably don't have time. <laughs> well, why don't we get to our spot now? And yeah, so today good. I've uh, decided to, to share a bit on Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, I haven't quite worked out a title for this yet. Maybe it's, it was something like, you know, um, 
what Ephesians 5 really teaches about husbands and wives or something like that. Wow. I feel like any time you say what this really teaches, <laughs> like... It's clickbait. You, it's clickbait. You're painting a big red target for yourself and saying, have a shot at, have a shot at me. That's right. That's right. Well, the reason why I want to talk about it is, is not because I want to do a complete commentary on the passage. And truth be told... This is a, it's, it's a really big passage. Um, I've been to, you know, lots of weddings where this is the passage that is preached. I've heard it preached, in my opinion, better and worse. I've pr- heard it um, misused. I've heard it weaponized. I've heard it uh, used helpfully. And so there's a whole lot of baggage that we can come with when we hear a passage like this. There may be listeners who, uh, you know, really struggle with this passage because you're someone who is struggling in thinking about your singleness and going, you know what, I hear about this passage all the time, and yet I don't have a husband or I don't have a wife uh, in order to live this out with. So what relevance does this passage have to me? Maybe you're someone who's listening and you're thinking, you know, I've totally seen this passage misused when it comes to my parents or my uncles and aunties or maybe a family from church. So there's a lot that we can come to this passage with. Uh, Pip, just, you know, initial thoughts when, when you hear a, um, you know, we're going to talk about Ephesians 5 and, and think of it about husbands and wives. Yo, initial thoughts, impressions from you? Get a bit nervous, not going to lie. It's a, <laughs> it is a hot topic. And as you said, like this passage has been used to abuse and to manipulate people. And so that's horrible. And so as people who are teachers of God's word or at least training to be teachers of God's word we've got to be very careful with this that's my that's my um initial thought um but happy to happy to dig into it and discuss it for sure yeah yeah for sure so to lay my cards on the table here I, I I'm not going to be able to talk about everything about in this passage but I do want to point out an insight that truth be told I have not heard uh, anyone else bring up. Uh, now that that sounds like quite a an exaggerated statement, but yeah, I mean, does that does that make you nervous about to say something that hasn't been <laughs> said before? Maybe I, I think you always have to be nervous when you uh, you know bring something up that you haven't heard people um, really come to before. And yet, yeah. I think that my insight here is grounded in the text, and so I'm, okay. I'm keen, Pip, for you to to question it a bit well, when, sure. I, when I bring it up later. Sure. But um, so, so I, I want to work towards this insight that I think is really helpful in trying to thread through some of the issues related to Ephesians 5 and thinking about how it applies to husbands and wives. It's something that I've thought for a number of years, and Viv and I uh, are convicted that this is a true insight from the passage. So I'm working towards that. We're not going to be able to talk about everything to do with the passage. Sound okay? Yep, sounds good. All right, let's get into it. So the book of Ephesians as a whole uh, is really about Jew-Gentile unity in Christ, in this thing called the body of Christ, in this thing called the church. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this passage, Ephesians 5 verses 22 to 33, um, is, is continuing to say something about the church, continuing to say something about this body of Christ that has been brought together. And so one of the keys to understanding the passage is having a look at verses 29 to 32. Can you read verses 29 to 32 from Ephesians 5, Pip? Yeah, it says, 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Mm. Thank you. And so we do need to understand that this passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, is about husbands and wives relating. But it's actually worth saying as well that Paul here has in view, he's continuing to teach about how Jesus and the church are to relate. We need to keep that in view because that's the model. It's not (laughs) primarily trying to say that husbands and wives is some sort of model. He's actually trying to point the husband and wife relationship to Christ and the church. And so what is the picture that we see here between Christ and the church? Well, just following now from the top of the passage, in verse 23, it says that husbands, uh, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. And so, We see here Christ and the church. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the savior of the church. Verse 24, as the church submits to Christ. Now, just pause there for a second. That's a really important point. The model here that he's comparing wives to look at is the church submitting to Christ. And at the end of verse 24, we have this, you know, in everything. Think about it for a second. As as God's people gathered Jew, Gentile, in Christ, united in the body of Christ, we are called to give ourselves to Christ. We are called to entrust ourselves to Christ. We are called to obey Christ, aren't we? He is the resurrected Lord and Savior of the church. He is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. That is the picture of the church in Christ um, right now. Mm. And that's really important for us to understand that whether you're married or not, you know, single, married, divorced, you as one of God's people are called to submit to Christ in everything. He is the Lord. He is the savior of the church. Now, before we then come to what that means for wives, what we want to understand is that husbands are actually pointed to something a bit different in terms of the image. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Because when does the church submit to Christ? Well, the church submits to Christ, who was the Lord, in one sense, in salvation history, in the ordo, um, not the salutis, but the ordo historicis, I forgot the Latin there is, you know, the order of history, after Christ is resurrected from the dead. You know, it's when Christ is raised from the dead, When he stands before, you know, the disciples, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go out and make disciples of all nations. But that's not the picture that husbands are actually pointed to in the following verses. Verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, that is very, very specific. See, Christ continues to love the church, doesn't he? The the Lord Jesus continues to love the church, nurturing the church, giving the church to the church, sustaining the church. But when Mm. did Christ give himself up for the church? It wasn't after the resurrection. 
it was before the resurrection, and the image here, I think, is pointing us to the cross. Jesus Christ on the cross loved the church and gave himself up for the church. Verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Verse 27, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Here's the insight. What husbands are pointed to as the image they are to imitate is different from the image that wives are pointed to and are called to imitate. Not because there's a different Jesus, but because what we see in Jesus, what Jesus models for us, what what the relationship between Christ and the church is, um, that point Paul is pointing to, is actually different for husbands and wives. If I can put it more clearly, husbands are called to love their wives like Christ loved the church in his death on the cross. Wives are called to submit to their husbands like the church does to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before I talk about what that means, because I think there are some big meanings in that, any initial thoughts from you, Pip, about my way of laying this out? Uh, like, I um, I appreciate the way you're laying it out. It's methodical, it's logical, makes sense. Um I'm just nervous about, I'm nervous about trying to, um, like, I, I know you're not trying to do this, but I think sometimes the temptation is to try to, like, placate those who would say um, it's, it's unacceptable that someone would submit to someone else. Um, and so, like, I, I, I don't, like, I can imagine, like, a lot of the friends that I have who are non-Christian, listening to what you're saying would still find it very offensive. And, um, yeah. So as Christians, we need to understand why that's, it comes off as offensive. You know, we need to kind of, um, seek to understand where, where they're coming from. And, um, so I think like, yeah, my, my kind of inclination is to kind of, I want to own up and say, yes, this is offensive in the eyes of the world. I want to explore that. and uh, um, But it's it's worth exp- getting it right first. It's mm. worth actually seeking to understand what it actually means, um, which is uh, which is what you're helping us to do. So mm. I'm, I'm happy so far. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what you'll see here is I'm not trying to soften the word submit. If anything, I think that we... Uh, we can seek to, to, to soften it because of the offense of it. But I think that the picture is pretty strong here. Church submits to Christ. That's, that's a strong relationship, isn't there? Uh, isn't it? So I'm not trying to soften that. What I am trying to do is trying to understand what the passage is, is seeking to say. Um, because what I think, where I think a lot of the errors come in is in the, the picture of what husbands are to do as well. So um, we, and so I'll expand on this in just a sec. However, we need to take a short break. We're recording on Zoom and we no longer have professional accounts. And so that means that we need to uh, close our meeting and then come back. But in the interim, as a bit of light entertainment, I'm going to insert a snippet of Pip's stand-up material from More Review. 
which is mm. a bit of a tonal shift from what we're talking about here. Just to lighten the mood, maybe, all right? So uh, we'll see you back in a bit, but enjoy these uh, musings. Now, <laughs> one of your dreams ever since you were a wee little lad mm. was to do a comedy show. Mm. Stand up. Yeah. Your two biggest influences in life are Jerry Seinfeld and Michael Scott. Mm. Yeah. Now, this tonight, this is not the forum to do that. Don't have time for it, no. That being said... <laughs> Observations to share about college. Um, have you ever noticed on the grapevine, um, you know, lots of odd things? But well, I, I just have one question: Who is buying Phil Kerr's pants? <laughs> Who's buying them? Phil, what are you doing with the seven hundred dollar pen? Who needs that? Uh, a little something. Um, I'll think a bit about. Um, who here is in a prayer group? Yeah, praying for different countries. All right, shout out what countries you praying for. Africa. Africa. <laughs> Is that a country or a continent? <laughs> didn't didn't enjoy me. Uh, other, other prayer groups? Victoria. Victoria. <laughs> Japan. Alright, here's an idea. Why don't we streamline it and we just have one prayer group for the world? <laughs> right? I mean, once a month we pray for five minutes, you know. I mean, the Lord's Prayer wasn't, you know, our Father in heaven. Hello, be your name, your kingdom come. We pray for Japan. <laughs> Am I right? Okay. Um. And we're back. Pip, how long did you spend on that stand-up material? Um, you know, every now and then in class, I'll just write a little note into my notes on the phone. So it's, you know, it's an ongoing process. Basically, ever since I started college, I've just been, if something funny comes to mind, I'll just pop it in the, uh, the old notes folder. There you go. Very yeah. nice. All right, so where were we? We've put this picture in place. And so what I think that this, I think this has a number of immediate implications. First of all, husbands loving their wives is to take the shape of Christ's completely pouring himself out. Um, if you think about Christ on the cross, he did not insist on his own rights. He did not... Uh, call down legions of angels to enforce the, the, the suffering and the punishment and the obedience, perhaps, of, of the people who were, who were treating him a particular way. In fact, Christ, in his love on the cross, uh, bore mistreatment and did not insist on his own way. Uh, as Philippians 2 says, he made himself nothing. Mm. That is the picture, I think, of husband love that Ephesians 5 is pointing us to. And I think this helps correct some misunderstandings of headship. A lot of people look to Ephesians 5 and say, well, look, you know, husband is the head of the wife, Christ is the head of the church, therefore husbands are to lead in marriage. The passage never says the word lead. Um, in fact, your trainer, Sam Russell, likes to say Ephesians 5 doesn't teach leadership, it teaches servantship. Um, and I think that's a really important insight because the problem with the reason why we think it's, uh, you know, it teaches leadership is because we think it's just a, a one image put forward for husbands and wives. But I don't think the passage gives us that. It gives a, an image for wives to follow 
which is the relationship between the church and the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, who is the savior of the body, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. But for husbands, the image that's given is Christ giving himself up for the church on the cross, which is the same Jesus. But in the order of history, Christ related differently when he gave himself on the cross to where he is now. You think about it, right? Jesus right now has all authority in heaven and on earth and one day will return to, to punish the sins of the disobedient and to, uh, to usher in um, his rule and reign. That's not the picture that husbands are to model themselves off um, when it comes to their, their love of their wives. In fact, the picture is uh, sacrificial, self-giving, uh, even if you are mistreated. I actually think that's part of the picture that husbands are, are called to. Um, it's to actually bear with, just like Christ bared with his people, um, bore with his people. And so I think it's a radical picture of love. It's one of servanthood and giving, not one of command and rule. Um, I think that's where the helpful insight comes in here, in that you're not meant to think as a husband, I need to be the resurrected Jesus to my wife. I need to command her. I have the right to make the decisions and she just needs to follow. Uh, I'm the one that needs to now, there is an initiative here, right? I do think there's an initiative. And so let me just read a quote from, um, I actually don't remember who said this. It might have been Tony Payne or Peter Bolt. I don't remember, but I've got the quote here. It says mm-hmm. this, Headship might be distorted elsewhere into a domineering, abusive insistence upon authority. But when patterned on Christ, it is precisely the opposite. It is bearing the responsibility to take the initiative in service and to bear the cost of an unrelenting commitment to the welfare of the other. What I really like about this definition is it's not an insistence upon authority. You see, Jesus on the cross, when he gave himself, he wasn't saying to the people, I'm the Lord, I'm the Messiah, you should be listening to me. I should be the one that tells you what to do. And I'm going to call down legions of angels now so that you, you know, get in line. Um, no, instead, I think this quote from um, uh, is, is right. It is bearing the responsibility to take the initiative in service and to bear the cost of an unrelenting commitment to the welfare, welfare of the other. Because that's what Christ shows us on the cross. And in the order, Jesus dying on the cross came first. And then in response, the church now gathered submits to the, the, the authority of Christ who is the resurrected Lord. And so I think that there is an initiative here in terms of the husband's headship. Husbands are to love and give themselves first. Um, they should take the initiative in doing that, to, to give themselves up for the good of, of their wife. And wives are to respectfully submit like the church does to Christ. Mm. Um, if, I, I like, to say, like... But you go, go, yes. You know, let me just play devil's advocate for a second. If I Please. was, um, you know, someone who is quite opposed to this passage, if I was coming from a kind of a secular um, perspective that didn't want to use the language of submission at all in marriage, mm-hmm. um, and I was looking at the Gospels and I was looking at how Jesus presents himself, I, I could say, like, Jesus, 
demand, like Jesus' command that people obey him is not actually based on his death for them. It's not actually like, so the, the need for people to obey Jesus is not actually dependent on his willingness to lay down his life for people. Mm-hmm. Jesus, Jesus' lordship exists before and after. And like the, the kind of the picture of Jesus' lordship is really like mainly connected to the resurrection, right? Through the rest of the New Testament, he's, he's, he's the Lord. He's been made Lord and Savior. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I could, I could push back and say, um, you know, in Paul's mind, he might have a view of submission that's not actually, you know, based on like the man, the, the kind of woman submitting to the man not as uh, because he is loving, not because he is um, lays down his life, but something external from that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. So while while like while there is a command to the man, it's not clear that the woman's like uh, that the, the the call for women to submit is kind of pre- like that's a pre the. It's a prerequisite that men are that kind of loving servant before women are called to submit. It's not mm. clear that that's the case, and I think that 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 that's why it's, um, re, you know, can be quite problematic. Yeah, I get that, and that's where we need to remember that in the first instance, it's not that the husband-wife relationship is ultimate; it's the Christ-Church relationship that's ultimate. And I think you're right. I don't think it's premised on. Wives submit as long as your husbands love. I don't think that that's the that's what Ephesians five gives us. Rather, I think that if there is a, a sense of initiative for husbands, it is to 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 take the initiative in this loving self service, yeah, self sacrificial yeah. service. So, so I think like you know, I, I can imagine being like a a skeptical non Christian coming to this passage and saying, "Look, I'm, I'm I love that I love that command to the man. I love that." I love that the Bible says that husbands should love their wives and lay themselves down for her. That's excellent, morally speaking. Um, but the idea that one human being should submit themselves to another human being is very dangerous. Yes, I agree. I agree it's um, really dangerous. Yes. Yeah. So for I guess sure. like, so, so my question would be, okay, how then do you respond to that? Like, how, how do we kind of work through that kind of accusation that the command here is quite dangerous? Mm. Um, and how do we uh, kind of show from, like, where, where do we go to kind of show that actually um, the, the command, the, the kind of the command to submit is actually connected to the man's responsibility to love? Because I think I think it is. Well, it's connected. It's not dependent on it, though. You know, there's the reason why it's dangerous is not because of the word submit. It's because of the nature of the man. Um, it's in other words, it's who you're submitting to. See, we understand that submitting to Christ as the church is a beautiful and good thing because He won't mistreat us. He won't misuse His authority, and we know the kind of savior he is the kind of lord he is because he's demonstrated it and so i think that there's two things here one is to say that the reason why it's dangerous 
is not because of the word submit. It's because of the nature of the, the, who the husband might be if they misuse their authority, which is why this passage is so helpful in saying, husbands, you are not the Lord and Savior of your wife. You are to love like Christ loved the church. And so it's yeah, actually yeah. trying to shoot down misunderstandings of what it means to be a husband. I think that, you know, we can put a lot of, bur- a lot of burden on, on husbands that the Bible here doesn't give by saying, husbands, you need to, to lead your wife and lead your family. I think that there is helpfulness in that sentiment. But the problem is we live in a world where ever since kindergarten, we've been hearing about leadership. And leadership is about taking command. Leadership is about taking initiative to, to put an idea out there and then capturing people to go along with your way or the highway. You know, when I did the, the uh, there was a student leadership program in year 10, there was a section about how you can captivate people to, to, to go your way. That's not what you're meant to do as a husband, mm, yeah, you know? Yeah. You're not meant to just go my way or the highway when it comes to... And, and I think that the picture here rather is one of self-giving. I said there were two things here that, you know, you want to say. I'm still on the first one. But really what we see here is a picture of giving. Husbands, what does it mean to actually put your wife first? It's to put her needs first and to her, her wants and her, you know, what, what would be loving for your wife? It's actually to, to, to put her needs first, to, to give yourself for her. So just on a very practical level, think about, you know, if you're thinking about making a decision as a husband, if I'm thinking about what it means to put my wife before myself, I'm going, what does she want first? What is, what is, what does she want instead of what do I want? Right? But then on the same side, on the wife's side, it's actually about giving yourself to your husband as well. It's putting him before yourself. It's putting, just like the church is to put Christ's desires before their own, right? In other words, yep. this is a picture of oneness. It's a picture of self-giving oneness where the husband takes the initiative in giving themselves to the wife, and then the wife gives herself to the husband. The second thing I'd say is to, that this passage doesn't condone misuses or abuses. So first of all, notice how verse 22 says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. It doesn't say husbands enforce the submission of your wife. And so if wives are, you know, in a relationship where the husband is enforcing submission or trying to enforce submission, that's, that's a misuse of the passage. And also I think in, uh, you know, uh, putting together some other parts of the Bible, the wife should try to get out of that relationship because it's not helpful. Their body is at risk. Their safety is at risk. Um, they should not uh, submit to that, especially because the submission is to be, verse 22, as to the Lord. In other words, there is a more, um, there is a prior kind of submission. It's submission to Jesus. And so if the husband calls you to murder, you don't submit to that because that's not something that, you know, uh, that accords with your prior submission to the Lord Jesus. If a husband calls you to submit to their misuse and mistreatment of your body, you're not called to submit to that because that doesn't accord with the prior and more ultimate submission to Jesus. Mm. (coughs) Sorry. Um, So I think that this passage actually helps us as well to say, um, you know, your, your husband wife relationship isn't ultimate. Christ church is, is what's ultimate. And so it protects from misuses to say, you know, if a husband is not doing the right thing here and you're actually at risk and your, your ability to stay in this relationship is threatening your ability to keep, you know, submitting to Jesus, get out, seek help. Um, and I think 
you know, I, I feel safe to say we both say, if you are in that, if you're listening to this and you are in that situation, absolutely seek help, you know, uh, find trusted leaders uh, and or call the police because um, misuse and abuse and mistreatment is not what this passage condones. Mm, yeah. I, so I think, I think that's right. I, I agree. And I, th- I think there's a bigger picture around marriage and around those um, issues of abuse that we, we I, I mean, I kind of think we need more than this passage to draw all that out. I think it's helpful to say that there is more than this passage. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, yeah, and and so yeah, the fact that that there is more than this passage, and I think there, you know, yeah. So I think like to to try and get all that from this passage is difficult, and so I think like to view when this passage is like read read at weddings or whatever, it can be quite jarring to people listening because they don't actually get that fuller context from this passage mm. about what is the Christian view of marriage. Yeah. You know? But at the same time, I think I want to say this, that as a teacher of the Bible, and I'm saying this to myself as much as to you and anyone who's listening, we can't be embarrassed of the Bible. Um, at least we shouldn't be. And I think that part of the reason why I love... Um, just when people ask about what I think about this passage, I love pointing this inside out, is because I think it helps people see that it doesn't, it doesn't do what a lot of people who've misused the passage think it can do in that. I just, I think that showing that there's a different picture and image just protects against a lot of misuse. Now, don't get me wrong. People are going to twist scripture. You know, Mm. people are going to misuse scripture, are going to misuse scripture. And, but, but to be clear on things like saying, no, this passage is not saying that you as a husband are the leader of your wife. You are not the resurrected Lord of your, of, of your wife. You are mm. not to be like the Lord Jesus. You know, you, that's not what this passage is calling you to. Um, and wives, you shouldn't expect that. Husbands, you shouldn't think that. Um, and the picture of love here, because I think what happens is that sometimes we try to mix the pictures. We say, yeah, you're, you're the head, you're the leader, and you lead like Christ loved. And I think mm. it's just a, it's a mixing of the pictures. It's a mixing of the pictures here, um, perhaps unhelpfully. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I think that, you know, people who do, do um, they're trying to teach the passage faithfully. And there's a lot of protections we put around the word love. Um, I just think that the passage gives us more resources to say, yeah, the picture is different. The model you're looking at is different. Um, it's the same Jesus. It's just a different point in, in, in what he does and shows us. Um, there's a lot here, you know, verse 28, we haven't even read in the same way. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Um, you know, verse 29, feed and care for the body, just as Christ does the church. There's this continuing aspect to what Christ does for sure. Um, just on a, if you don't mind, I, I thought I'd just briefly get a bit practical in terms of what this looks like, perhaps yeah, in, in cool. my marriage with Viv, um, unless you wanted to say something else before that. No, no, that's fine. Go ahead. Um, I think what this means is that when I wake up in the morning, I'm not thinking, you know, okay, how do I lead Viv today? Or how do I, you know, command Viv today? Or how, That's not my picture. My picture is, okay, how am I going to love her today? How am I going to serve her today? And that 
um, in, in big things, that, that's really helpful. Uh, when we have a big decision we need to make, you know, it can be, okay, so what's going to be for the good of my wife? What's going to be for the good of her and her godliness, her holiness? How can I help her continue submitting to Christ? And then for Viv, it's, you know, thinking about, okay, so in light of what these things that uh, I might be putting forward or these things that we might be deciding, how does she respectfully give herself to that in all things? Um, it, it's an immensely practical picture in big things as well as small things. So a little silly example that I've thrown out there before is uh, one, one night Viv and I were deciding whether or not we'd keep watching TV or if we'd go to bed earlier. And I just said, hey, Viv, what do you want to do? <coughs> to be honest, I was a bit tired. And she said, oh, what do you want to do? Now, all of a sudden, you go, oh, wait, is this a circle that just, you know, never ends? Yeah, yeah, she goes, what yeah. do you want to do? I go, well, you know, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm feeling a bit tired, but would you like to keep watching TV? Because if so, I, I'd love to sit and keep watching with you. And she said, no, you're, you're tired. I, I, think, I, I think we should stop watching TV. And I said... Are you sure? Because I feel like you really wanted to watch one more episode. She said, oh, I kind of did. And I said, all right, well, why don't we watch one more episode? And she said, oh, but I, I, I already mentally said we weren't going to watch anything else. Are you sure? I said, yeah, let's watch one more. You wanted to, let's watch another one. She goes, okay, let's watch one more. And all of a sudden, this dance, I call it a dance of oneness, where for me, I just keep wanting to put her needs and desires above my own. Her, she just wants to keep thinking about what, what, what I want and where neither one of us are trying to assert our own place and authority, but we came to a decision in the end. It's, it's complicated, but it's immensely practical because either way, we're trying to put the other person above us. I just take the initiative first to try to put her wants and desires before my own. That's a bit of a silly, trivial example, but it's how Viv and I operate. And I yeah, think and it, yeah. it's helpful. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a helpful picture of like, you know, a more nuanced kind of view of what what does it mean to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ? What does it mean to love and submit? And um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, particularly that love side, right? It's it's mm. it's um, there's nuance to it. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. That's and it also means that sometimes there are times when I will just say to Viv, "Hey, can you do this?" without asking what she thinks. That's rare though, but when it happens, Viv knows that it's probably because I've already thought about that I want to love her and put her needs above my own. It's, it's very rare that I just say to Viv, could you do this or could you do that? Um, but when it happens, she follows along and goes, yeah, I, I think James has got my best interests at heart. Uh, now, to be clear, I'm not perfect at loving sacrificially. Um, I'm not, uh, and, and I readily admit that, but this is the model that is put forward for me I'm constantly thinking, how do I put her holiness, her goodness, her desires, her wants before my own? That's how I exercise headship, not how can I get her to do what I want her to do? How, how do I decide what the next you know, year is going to look like without consulting what Viv wants? That's not what headship looks like, I think, uh, in, if, from Ephesians 5. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you want to share anything about maybe your marriage? Or, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but how does this play itself out for you and self? Um, you know, oh, I'm just trying. To, I'm trying to think. Like we, we haven't really talked this through heaps. I think we, um, 
Yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to think. Like, you know, I'm always hesitant to share like personal stuff. Um, but you don't I, I need think, to if you don't want to. <laughs> like, no, no, no I, I won't share anything personal. I'll just say, like, we. I feel like, yeah, we we have like an understanding of like if there's any if there's anything that one of us doesn't want to do or wants to or wants to do and if there's any if there's any like disalignment or disagreement then like the right thing to do is to talk about it like i do not i do not see myself as like uh the the master of the house or the head of the house or anything like that um like i see it as a we we need to work together on any kind of decision where there's a disagreement. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's like a lot of give and take. There's like a lot of like compromise on both sides for, for things. And I think like the, the kind of motivator, I guess, that we, we would say is the thing that motivates is just love, common sense. Um, yeah, seeking to care for the other person. And so I think like, you know, I even, I, I don't know, I need to come to grips with this, la- this language because I'm, I'm personally uncomfortable uh, a lot of the time using this language that's given in Ephesians 5. And so I think I need to kind of wrap my head around it a bit more and understand it a bit more cl- clearly. Um, I think like I, I do resonate with people who look at this and it's jarring. I do find it jarring. And so, um, but having said that, I, I'm not against it and I'm not like opposed to it. And I want to work it out and see how it works out. Mm. I think I'm just, I'm, I think I'm, I'm quite, uh, like sensitive to how it can be misused. And so, yeah, my tendency mm. is just not, not to use the language at all, which mm. is probably not the right approach. And I need a. I need to work on that and figure that out. Mm. Mm. Oh, well, thanks for sharing that. I know that, that that's a it's a humbling admission for sure. Yeah. One thing I do want to just wrap this section out with is um Yeah, it's probably not the best place to land, but I think one thing I, I would want to say is this passage doesn't give us compromise as the goal. I think sometimes people say the key to a healthy marriage is compromise. I don't think Ephesians five tells you to compromise. I explain what I mean by that. Um as a husband, if I'm really going to put my wife first, uh, I should do it wholeheartedly and not begrudgingly. I think that's important. It's not, well, I absolutely hate that you're making me do this, but yes, I'm going to love you and put you first and I'm going to complain about it the whole way through. Um, but also, if you think about how we are re- meant to relate to Christ, and you know, I might be taking the... I want to admit at this point, I'm on shaky ground when I say this next part. <laughs> You think about what it means for us to submit to Christ, yeah? I mean, when it comes to Jesus' word, I don't think we're called to just do what Jesus tells us, but say, yeah, but I hate that he's making me doing do it. I think we're actually meant to try to conform our mind, renew our mind, and conform our desires so that they are Christ's desires as well. In other words, to love what Christ loves, to hate what Christ hates, to, to do what Christ wants of us. In other words, I think that the church's submission to Christ is more than just obedience. It's actually an alignment of our will. And so I think that that's a really 
you can see what I meant at the start here and that I'm not softening submission at all. I think if anything, I'm, I'm just trying to tighten it to the point where I see the image of Christ in the church. I think wives submitting to their husbands are actually called to align their wills with their husbands as well. Um, and so similarly, you know, just like a husband isn't meant to say, all right, I hate that you're making me do this, but I'll do this anyway. And I'll complain about it the whole way. I think wives are called to align their wills with their husbands, um, to, to, to go, yeah, look, this is the thing we're going with. All right. This is the thing we're going with. And I'm going to want it for myself as well. Um, again, not something that you enforce, not something that you command and, and, and bring about in, in a wife, if you're a husband, but it's stronger than compromise because compromise says both of us are losing and look, we'll just agree to disagree and we'll go with this anyway. Rather, I think the picture is oneness. It's about being one in your, in your flesh, one in your desires, one in your trajectory. That's the picture because ultimately what God has done, and here we go, here's a good place to land. What God has done for us in Christ is to gather us together with him in his body as the church, one, one unity together. And we are called to align ourselves with Christ's will. Uh, I think that's, that, that's a really profound thing. Um, it's a, it's a, it's the victory of the gospel, isn't it? In gathering us together. Yeah. yeah so a lot more that could be said, but yeah, there you go. There's some stuff there. Is, is that different, Pip, from what you've heard before? Um, like, not really. Like, I mean, I, I, I feel I've heard like a few times people approach this as let's, let's talk up the man's role in loving the wife. And that is going to give the context for this like pretty stark command for wives to submit to the husband's. Um, and to say, like, on, only when both parties obey the command does it actually work and lead to a fruitful, healthy relationship. Mm. Um, so I, I want to interrogate that slightly, just because I understand it, but I don't think husbands are called to love their wives only if the wife submits. Uh, or No, no, yeah. So I think, like, the way that I've heard it explained is, like, the command stands... For both individually, yes. regardless of whether the other does their part, but it mm. only works. Yes. Okay. If yeah, both, I gotcha. You know, fulfill their role. Yes. Yep. No. Fair um, enough. I think that's helpful. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think, I think though, like, you know, Paul, it, it it does stem from submit to one another, be subject to one another, out of reverence for Christ. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder, like, if, and this is, this is a little bit controversial, you no, know, go, go for and it. I, I don't, I don't want to like come off as, you know, quote unquote, like, you know, woke in the kind of, in the <laughs> kind of pejorative sense, but, um, like, I wonder if we need to wrestle with that language of submission as it connects to the rest of Paul's commands about being subject to one another. Even, I mean, like, you know, I don't, I don't like to get into, like, the... It's, it's, it's interesting, like, looking at the, the Greek, where it's, like, the, it's not as if it says, like, women submit to men. It's, like, be subject to one, one another and kind of says, like, women to, to your man, to your own husband. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it's um, not women in general. It's wives submit to your husband. Yeah. And, it, and as it kind of moves down the list and it gets to husband and how they relate to their lives, because the word love is inserted there, we then say, okay, we don't use the word, we don't say husband submit to wives. 
I'm not sure why. So as a, and, and, and it's probably good I'm a second year college student and not a, not a minister in a church yet because I obviously still have things to wrestle through. Mm. Um, I, I do wonder w- whether there's an unhealth, unhealthy imbalance that gets like conveyed in the way we say submission is, is not the word to use of men to their wives. Um, yeah. Again, I, I think that's not obviously not the traditional view. And so I'm very cautious. I don't want to. Ad- I don't want to kind of advocate half thoughts. Mm. You know. Well, just to, I'm willing you know, to air them and it, just to, yeah. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it's a, it's a, more time needs to be thought of in terms of submit and how that also relates with what comes after with children and parents, slaves and masters. One thing I will say in in favor of what you're you're putting forward here is you rem- remember that in the end uh, I do think this is a picture of self giving on both sides. Um, husbands taking the initiative to give themselves to their wife, wives yeah. giving themselves to the husband. And so there is, if, if submit is this idea of giving yourself, yeah, then both are giving themselves for yeah. sure. Uh, even I, though like the, his, the picture is different. Like, yeah, yeah, I agree. Like here's, here's an interesting theological question that I think is attached. Is it, do you think it's accurate to say that Christ made himself subject to his people? Uh, as a servant, for sure. Yes, absolutely. I think so. Theologically, I think you can say that. Is there a biblical passage that puts... I mean, you know, Philippians 2 made himself nothing like a servant. You know, um, yeah. I don't think that's controversial. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that's controversial. But <laughs> is it controversial to say Christ submitted to the will of his people? Yes, I think so. Yeah, because it's so, not the will uh, of the people. So it's to some, the will of the Father that he submitted. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. So whenever we we're talking about single words, it's risky. And so I yes. think the, the the kind of the phrase to submit to someone or to make yourself subject to someone. Yes, there is a there is a difference in the way it's used today. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure if there has always been that difference. And I think that we need to kind of think think through that in this passage and how it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. No, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not saying I've got any answers. I'm just <laughs> saying. I'm just saying. Like these are some of the linguistic things. Like words just are packed full of, um, weight, You know, packed full of weight, yes. packed full of meaning, yes. significance, and we got to be careful with how we use these words well, and how we translate. That that's why I think that the key in the end is the pictures. I think the image yes, that yep. Paul points us to is the thing to focus in on, and it's again, it's striking that he gives us very. Um, not very different, but he gives us specific pictures for the husband and wife to model themselves on. Um, yes. Let's finish up that section. <laughs> yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. Thanks, James. Thanks for no. sharing and for helping us through that. Yeah, and listeners, if you have more thoughts or questions about this, please feel free to message us on, on Instagram at Bible underscore boys or email us at thebibleboys at gmail.com. I don't claim to know everything about this passage. This is just a particular line of inquiry and insight um, and I want to keep learning as well. Yeah, that's been helpful. Thanks. Why don't we play a quick game of Guess Who? We've uh, we've gone long this episode. Yeah, but that's all right. Actually. It's a juicy topic. Yeah. Uh, do you want to? Do you have a Guess Who for me or a Guess Which for me? Um, I'll, I'll do a Guess Who for you if you want. Great. Let's do it. Okay. Um. Yep. I've got someone. All right. Is this person? Does this person first show up in the New Testament? Yes. Does this person first show up in the Gospels? 
No. Does this person first show up in the... Does this person's name show up in the Book of Acts? Yes. Is this person male? Yes. Is this person someone who interacts with Paul? No. Is this person someone who interacts with Peter? Uh, yes. How many questions is that? Six. Six questions. Okay. Uh, does this person first show up after Antioch? I don't, uh, I'm going to say before. Okay, before. So, so no, yeah, um, seven. Uh, does this person first show up, um, does this person show up before Acts 8? Um, I don't think so, actually. Is this person a Gentile? No. Oh. Uh, hmm. Do we know this person's name? Yes. Okay, ten. Ten questions. Mm, Uh, Is this person seen favorably? Yes. Okay, is this person... Is this person already a Christian when we meet him? No. Ooh. Oh, great. A Christian already when we meet him. Peter interacts with this person. Oh. Is this... Does this person... Do we get this a record of this person's death? No. Okay. Uh... Oh boy, I don't know if I'm going to get it. It's a bit of a dark spot for me. Peter's goings and happenings in Acts 9 and 10, apart from his interaction with like Cornelius or the other people there. And hmm, I might not get this. Uh, does this person's name show up in the epistles? Yes. Okay, does this person. Oh, is this person a leader in the church? Yes. Uh, is this person one of the 12 apostles? No. No. Does this person have a book of the Bible named after them? No. No. Oh, boy. Oh, man. 17 questions. Three more. Listeners, I don't think I'm going to get this. I hope none of my answers were controversial. No, no, no. It's uh, just, oh, man, I'm I'm blanking. Right. Uh, Does this person get named in 1 Peter? Yes. Gets named in 1 Peter. I think so. I'm pretty sure. Actually, I might be wrong. They get named in either 1 Peter or 2 Peter. I I forget. Okay. Does this person's name start with S? No. No. Oh, 19 questions. All right. I've got it. I'm I'm sorry. I don't have it. It's going to be controversial. It's po- oh, you got one more. You got one, one I got more. One more. I got one more. Okay. I got one more. Oh man, controversial. Why is it going to be controversial? Leader in the church, Gentile, no, male. Is uh oh, oh man, leader in the church. No, nah, I don't have it. I give up. Who is it? Really? Uh, okay, controversial. It's Paul. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think it's it's, co- it's 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 controversial because um, does he appear in Act Seven? Maybe the last is it the last verse of Act Seven or the first verse of Act no, it's Eight? first verse of Acts Eight. Yes, yes, yes. Was there anything that I said that was not accurate that didn't line up with Paul? Uh... He doesn't interact oh, with Paul. No, no, no. I, I get it. I get it. The the, the one where I said, um, "Are they already a Christian?" And I said because no when we first you said no. Them. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, did you? You know yeah, what? I said, I've forgotten. That's oh, okay. okay. But good job. Good job. That that was a good one. Sometimes the most the hardest one is the most obvious That's one, it. isn't it? That's it. Hey, we're That's almost it. out of time, so we should say That's goodbye. It. Say goodbye. Do you want to sign us out, Pip? Yeah, it's been great wrestling with the Bible. Have a great week. See you next time. Love the Bible boys. <laughs>